welcome to Covenant Presbyterian Church of Fort Smith's weekly sermon podcast. Covenant is a church devoted to theological depth, intimate relationships, joyous worship, relentless evangelism, and sacrificial service. This week, we welcomed guest preacher Stephen Atkinson, Director of Ministry for Christian Witness to Israel, North America. And so I turn us to Ezekiel 36. Uh, as was read for us earlier, um, and I will be referencing a little bit in Romans 11, and uh, again, that was also read for us. But first of all, I want to draw our attention to what we just prayed. We prayed the Lord's Prayer. And myself included, we, we're so familiar with the Lord's Prayer we need to pause a little more. I'm, I'm, I'm tempted to rebuke uh, our dear brother that when it came to the confession, I had so many things to confess that it was too short. Um, we need a longer personal silent confession. Um, and when we come to the Lord's Prayer, we need to pause because it is a model prayer, but we're so familiar with it that we just rush through it. Our Father... Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That's what we want. That's what we desire. And it's not as we desire it to be, Lord. Your kingdom come, the rule of Christ in the hearts of men and women. Bring it on, Lord. Your will, your will done on earth among presidents, popes, and princes. Your will done on earth as it is in heaven. We know it's done in heaven. We see the mass on earth. And we know you are sovereign and we know that you are bringing all things together for good. But bring your rule, bring your kingdom, bring the hallowing of your name on earth. Are these the things that are in your mind when you pray the Lord's Prayer? I have a, a young man in, in our home congregation up in Fayetteville, and uh, we have a, an occasional back and forth theologically. And, and one of the things he recently said to me was, you know, I wish I had your optimism. And he didn't mean that in, in the sense of, yeah, this, this world is an absolute mess. And, and No, he, he said he didn't see it in the Scriptures. And I retorted by saying, why did Jesus teach us to pray the Lord's Prayer if we shouldn't be optimistic? Is the Lord's Prayer a vain petition? Is it pointless? Is, is it all doom and gloom? If we are to pray, if we are taught to pray, bring it on, Lord. If we're taught to pray for the hallowing and the kingdom and the will and the rule of Christ on earth as in heaven, then we should be optimistic. It's no vain thing. And so I take us to Ezekiel 36 and paralleling, as you see, with Romans 11, and then dealing with this 
optimism, particularly as it pertains to Jewish mission. But as someone once said, Jewish people are just like everyone else, only more so. Hmm? Um, Jewish mission is just like mission, only more so, maybe. And we should be optimistic because God is sovereign, and we pray to our, our Father. Now, without an in-depth exegesis into Ezekiel, but I, I do want to simply to, to note that this passage that was read has been fulfilled, but not fully filled. And I think that's a, that's a helpful, and I hope it's not a cop-out, but I think it's helpful as we read some scriptures, because sometimes people come to more obscure passages of Scripture and say, well, is this fulfilled? But that, that's fulfilled, but this is not fulfilled, and this has got, still got to come to pass. And they've got it all mapped out. And, and the older I get, the less I know. And, and, and I look at Ezekiel, and I say, yeah, that, that, that's fulfilled, but not fully filled. And I think that's maybe my simple way of understanding more complicated passages. There are passages that have a partial fulfillment, but God has more. So we might look at this passage, and we took, we, we, when we read it, we were thinking, oh, this is about Israel returning to the land. This is about Israel's revival. Um, didn't this happen when they came back from exile? And so we sang Psalm 126. When the Lord restored the fortunes, we were like men who dreamed. It, this was just amazing that the Lord brought us back from Babylon. Was that the return? Was that what was spoken of here? Was the rebuilding of the second temple? Uh, was that what was uh, prophesied here? And, and uh, this rebirth of the nation? Uh, yeah, it was fulfilled, but not fully. Fast forward to the New Testament days, and, and you, you remember Jesus having that uh, controversy, we may say, or a conversation uh, with Nicodemus, Jewish ruler. Nicodemus, you must be born again. And Nicodemus scratches his head and wonders, what, what, is, what, born again, you know, have I mother's woman? Nicodemus, have you never read Ezekiel? Don't you know these things, Nicodemus? You're Israel's teacher. It's in Ezekiel, and it talks about a new heart and a new spirit that is put within you, Nicodemus. Don't you know these things? And so, was that fulfilled in the day of Nicodemus? Yes, but not fully. Fast forward to, to Jesus' death and resurrection, and then on to the day of Pentecost. And so there's these thousands of Jewish people all gathered together for the Jewish festival of Shavuot, of Pentecost, and Peter preaches Joel. That Jewish fisherman opens up an Old Testament passage probably a little bit obscure to the people of that day. But then he preaches Jesus from Joel, and the Spirit descends, and there is a new heart and a new spirit put within them. Was that fulfilled? Yes, but not fully. The Jewish apostle Paul would see the expansion of this Jewish gospel into new areas from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. It would, be, it would go to Rome of all places. And so when it comes to Rome, Paul is pained by seeing his own people not responding to the gospel. 
And when we read through the book of Romans, or the letter to the Romans, we read in Romans 9 of his heart's desire, or we read of his, his anguish in Romans 9, and then we read of his heart's desire in Romans 10, that they may be saved. That my Jewish brethren, to whom has been given the law, the all this, the symbols and, and the sacrifices, and from them the human ancestry of Christ. But they don't know Him. Oh, my Jewish brethren, He says, my heart is for them. And the Lord then opens up in Romans 11, which we read, about a grafting in again of the natural branches. What's that all about? It's about Ezekiel. And so in Romans 11, you see a promised fulfillment of Ezekiel 36. And I'm a kingdom optimist because God will do what God will do. And what we have in the outline is four things that I want us to note briefly, really, uh, as we proceed through this won't be so much a verse-by-verse verse and really in-depth analysis, but just drawing very particularly four headings or four phrases from the Lord. Because in verses 21 and 22, you find what we have in our first point, concern. We see the Lord saying, I had concern. In verses 23 to 25, we read the Lord saying, I will vindicate. On down to 26 to 32, and we read that the Lord says, I will act. And then 33 to 36, we read conclusively, I will do it. So I hope you see where I'm going with all of this. Every part of this passage is a divinely declared fact. The whole of Ezekiel 36 is just drenched with I am. And the very next chapter is Ezekiel 37, which actually one of the booklets that we have on the table, that's on Ezekiel 37. So if you want to get the next chapter, then take Spurgeon on Ezekiel 37. And you know that's the passage pertaining to the valley of dry bones. And what we have in 37 is an illustration or a, a vision of the promise fulfilled of Ezekiel 36. So let's move into this text and really particularly under these pointed phrases from the Lord and the concern for the holy name, as we find it in verses 21 and 22. Concern for the holy name. I, I mentioned at the outset the Lord's Prayer. Where does it begin? Hallowed be your name. And I really believe that, that we need to get our ministries, as I said in the Sunday school, are prioritized. And we need to get our prayer lives prioritized. Someone once talked about the prayer meeting as the organ recital. In other words, there's all the organs that are mentioned. If someone has a certain problem of a certain organ of their body and we need to pray. And that, that's right. But do our prayer meetings... And do our private prayers begin, hallowed be thy name? We're so self-obsessed. We're so full of our personal situations. But we need to have a concern for the holy name because the Lord has concern for his holy name. 
Do you have concern for the honor of King Jesus? There's not an inch of this piece of dirt in which we live that is not his. He is king. And we need to desire to see his kingdom come, his will be done. Because, Lord, presently it's not. Presently, just as there was a profaning your name, presently in our society, in the Western world, and indeed the world in general, there is a despisal of the King of Israel, the Lord God Almighty. There is a profaning his name. There is a ridicule of God. There is a murdering his image in the womb. There is the perverting his order of divine things and human things. There is all manner of gender fluidity and promoting the insanity among children. Heaven, we got a problem. Your name. Your name is profaned by this madness. And he answers, yes, I have concern. This shall stop. In the midst of the profanity of Israel in Ezekiel 36, the Lord said, I had concern. And the reason I'm a kingdom optimist, whether it's a defiled ancient land or a defiled chosen people or a defiled created order or a defiled man that doesn't know he's a man, God will retrieve his honor. And we need to pause on that. We need to pause more in general. And isn't that why in the Psalms we, we read Selah so often? We just have to just, just pause, just, just contemplate these things. Quietness is in short supply. There's so many things that, that, that just bombard us with, with the emails and the texts and the notifications and this. And finding quietness is a challenge. We need to pause. I said in the Sunday school hour that uh, I have uh, four kids and soon to be 14 grandkids. And last Christmas, we had the family for Christmas, and we formerly were able to accommodate all in our four-bedroom house in Rogers, but uh, more recently, there had to be a few extra uh, uh, Airbnbs uh, added into the, into the mix. But we had them all for Christmas dinner. It was a noisy affair. And anybody that's got grandchildren will know it's a noisy and busy and tiring affair. And then they all left. It was quiet. And sometimes we like the quiet, and sometimes we wish, bring it back again. We need some quietness over our Bibles when they're on our knees. That's why I don't like using the phone as my Bible, because you get a notification coming in. Open your Bibles and pause. Pause over this. I had concern. Heaven, we got a problem. I have concern. And so when Paul writes in Romans about the problems, <clears throat> and one of the, the problems that Paul writes of in, in Romans 
concerns his own people not believing. And so he comes into Romans 9, as I said earlier, with this angst, with this anguish, and he's got this problem. Heaven, we got a problem. They're your chosen people. They don't, they don't know you. And the Lord responds, don't worry, Paul, I have concern. And opens up in the whole Romans 9, 10, and 11 passages that vista of the Lord's dealings with the ancient people. He's not finished. He's not finished with Israel. And so Romans 9, 10, and 11 prophesies that culminating, climactic, reviving of the Jewish people, such as we have it here in the full fulfillment of it. Whenever the Lord so plans, I'm not giving you a timeline, but I believe it's happening and will happen. Ian Murray, writing in a classic, uh, The Puritan Hope, uh, and I commend that to you. It's uh, sadly, I haven't got it on my bookstall. I should have. Sometimes I do. But in The Puritan Hope, <clears throat> he says this, Puritan thought never gave way to the feeling that because the condition of the world was so deplorable that the second coming of Christ was the only hope for mankind. Have you heard that said? It's all a mess. We just got to wait until the second coming. He said, Puritan hope never gave way to that thought. In their mind, to have done so would have been to fall into unbelief in regard to the promised results of the first coming. In other words, because... Christ came into the world to save sinners. Sinners will be saved. There are promised results of the first coming. Otherwise, why not just close up shop at the first century? Or why not just bring another flood to the mess and the sodomy of our world? Well, you said you wouldn't do the, the flood. Okay, you, you, rainbow. Oh, they've stolen that. Okay, hmm. Or bring another cosmic storm upon Sodom and Gomorrah. No. You see, his first coming was to usher in the kingdom. Christ is king. He has bound the strong man. You remember him saying that. The strong man is to be bound. He is plundering the goods of the strong man. What was the believing community like in the days of Jesus? It was a handful. But as the gospel went forth, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to Fort Smith, Satan's goods have been plundered. 2,000 years ago, what were my Scots-Irish ancestors doing but dancing around stone in the highlands of Scotland? And yet, now there are churches there. You see, God has used the gospel going forward through the centuries to plunder the goods of the enemy. And the nations of the world are becoming the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. Why? Number one, he had concern. Second thing I want us to note, the vindication. The vindication of his holiness in Israel as we as we read it here. And I, and I want you to note the order. That God will bring holiness to the ancient people. He will bring godliness. He will dispel that ungodliness from Jacob, Romans 11. Why? Because of his holy name. Because of his own name. 
in Duguid, commentator on Ezekiel, he says, if there had been no other reasoning involved for God than the necessity of God dealing with Israel, sin, permanent wrath would have sufficed. In other words, just end it. Just deal with the sin. But no, he wouldn't have been vindicating his holy name because he, by his holy name, had entered into covenant with this people. And so Enduga continues, because of that sovereign, irrevocable act, God's covenant, God's promise, he said, mercy not only may, but must be shown to Israel. In other words, the promises of Ezekiel 36, of God doing something among the ancient people, bringing holiness within, is something that's promised. And it's something that God has irrevocably promised. And He must do what He must do. And again, we'll say that this has not been fully filled yet. And in Romans 11, we actually read, Israel has experienced a pardoning in part. Or, or sorry, a hardening in part. There is a partial nature to Israel's veiled darkness. But this Jewish apostle is, is prophesying of, or rather, are, are speaking the words of the Lord's prophecy of the natural branches being grafted in again. And that fulfills Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, this expectation of what is yet to come. And I think this is something really that the, 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 the 21st century church needs to get back. We, we need to be an expectant people. William Carey, you remember, he, he expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. He expected things. The Puritans were men who expected, who were hopeful of things. So Ian Murray writes again, Puritan Hope. He says, it colored the spiritual thought of the American colonies. It taught men to expect great outpourings. It prepared the way to the new age of world missions. But Ian Murray says, Today the church no longer appears before men as a world-transforming power. God are the, gone are the anticipations. Why are we not anticipating? Why are we not expecting? Why are we not hopeful? Why? When God has concern, when God says, I will vindicate, this is my Father's world. This is the property of Christ. Let's retrace history very, very briefly. 16th century, a grace-filled century of Reformation revival. The institutional church was selling salvation, was selling Christ, was selling all manner of stuff, and the Lord sent a Luther, and he literally nailed it. And the future of that Reformation and that revival that the Lord brought was a century of grace-filled Reformation of countries, all over Europe particularly. 17th century was a century of expectation. We're starting to develop into the new world. The Reformation was starting to come over into the new world. And despite modern narratives, the expansion into the colonies 
was seen by many of the churches in England and, and in the UK as, as claiming lands for King Jesus. They were fulfilling this great commission that was to disciple nations. 16th century, 17th century, fast forward to 18th century with further hopefulness and with hope coming to fulfillment. We have times of great awakenings. Read of Jonathan Edwards. Into the 19th century, and you see the explosion of world missions, including ours in 1842. This Puritan hope, this expectation, and particularly pertaining Israel, was really out of the Scriptures that God had concern. God will vindicate. God has said it. He will do it. And it ushered forth in passionate, selfless, prayerful, sacrificial going and giving to the ends of the earth. What happened in the 19th century, 20th century? Liberalism, pessimism, and I hope I'm not stepping on toes, but I dare to anyway, a new theology of dispensationalism with a new idea. We've got to have an escape plan from the wreck of the world. We're going to get raptured. We're not having, we have a problem. Because all we need to do is get people to get their ticket. And what did that produce? Easy believism, walk the aisle, sign the card, results-centered ministries. Whatever happened to salting the earth, enlightening it with a gospel that was God given to, to turn a world upside down. Now instead we sing, one bright morning when the sun is rising, I'm going to fly away. Where is the vindication of God in our flying away? Alexander Duff, Scottish theologian, he said, we can afford to work in faith for omnipotence is pledged to fulfill the promise. Omnipotence is pledged. We can hold him to it, to his promise. God is concerned. God will vindicate. Thirdly, God's action. For the holy transformation of Israel, we read it in 26 to 32. In the mess of idolatrous Israel, what, what do we read? Again, we, we haven't time to, to take verse by verse. But what we read very, very quickly, very simply, I will take, I will gather, I will bring, I will sprinkle, I will cleanse, I will give, I will put, I will cause, I will deliver. Verse 32, I will act. I'm a kingdom optimist. This speaks of God at work. And a divine act and activity of godly transformation of a profaned people out of his pure, free mercy and grace. What we read here is Jewish revival that is saving and sanctifying. This is spiritual life-giving. This is spiritual living. This is Israel's rebirth. This is what we read in the next chapter. In the Valley of Dry Bones. What's the Valley of Dry Bones? In a nutshell, preach to bones. So we go to the streets of Pittsburgh, and we have people passing by with their kippah and all their dress. 
and we're preaching to bones. They're dead. Pray for the wind. Preach to bones. Pray for the wind. And in Ezekiel 37, the Lord gets the bones a-rattling and gives flesh, gives life, and they come to life a mighty army. Ezekiel 37 is the illustration and the vision of Ezekiel 36, and, the, and Romans 11 is the actual promised vision of Ezekiel 37, Jewish revival. Why is it that we are so fascinated with Middle East politics, romantic ideas about the land, all manner of Jewish stuff, when this is talking about bones, people, souls? God has providentially placed 42% of his ancient people on our shores. The natural branches are here, and we are living side by side with them. How many Christians are here? Well, it depends how conservative you do the numbers, but 10, 20, 30 million alongside 6 million Jewish people. This is no accident. This is a divine providence. Going right back to, eight, to, to 1654, and there's even a, a lecture on it in the AC course if you're interested how the Jewish people got here. They're uh, being kicked out of every country in Europe and being kicked out of any country that was Roman Catholic, and Reformed countries were welcoming them in, welcoming them in, particularly Holland. That's why we've got a brockel on our, on our table as well. That warmth of the Dutch Reformation in receiving in the Jewish people. So it was that the first synagogue in the New World was built in Recife, Brazil, which at that time was under the control of the Dutch. Enter the Portuguese. What happens? They all get kicked out. Go back to Amsterdam. And so in 1654, one ship doesn't make it back to Amsterdam, but comes into New Amsterdam. Ten years later, New York. And a small ship, the St. Catherine, they embark, and a small Jewish community begins. And now there are two million in New York City and six million across our land. Is this an accident? <laughs> no. And so what is our mission? To preach to the bones and pray for the wind. And those six million will not be reached by one or two experts. It will be by the church mobilized to see the fields that are white unto harvest and pray through the promises optimistically, expectantly. Alexander Duff, I mentioned him earlier, Scottish missionary, uh, from the Church of Scotland, Ian Murray writes, he says, his calling involved a new and comparatively untried concept, namely that the church herself is a missionary society. Do you get that? We are a parachurch missionary society. That means that we're not an independent body. We are para alongside the church. We are interdenominational, interchurch. In fact, our, our finding documents in 1843 said that we were to be a rallying point and outlet. And I like those terms, Evie. It was to rally churches and Christians and to be an outlet for evangelism among the Jewish community. And we're happy to do that as well. 
but it is a church-wide thing. Mission is from the church, through the church, to the church. So Jewish revival is not something you're going to pay the experts for. It's something that you will do. And please, God, give you Jewish contacts. Mobilize you for mission. God is concerned. God will vindicate. God will act, Psalm 102, 13. You will arise and have pity on Zion. It is the time to favor her. The appointed time has come. Enough of petty pessimism. Enough of flyaway rapturology. Enough of reformed monasticism where we just simply gather ourselves in our reformed huddles and just teach ourselves the five points. We have a message to bring to Jew and Greek. We have a message to bring to Israel. They brought it to us. They didn't sit in Jerusalem saying, let's just study Torah. They went across lands. These Jewish believers of the first century went across lands, and here we are. Praise the Lord. Let's bring it back. God's concern and God's vindication will overflow into God's action. That's the Puritan hope. And I'm a kingdom optimist, and I hope you are too. Finally, briefly, the intention for the holy transformation of the world. You see, Jewish mission is not the end in itself. We're after the world. Then the nations that are left all around you shall know, I am the Lord, I have spoken, I will do it. The nations will see that God is, and this will affect even revival among the nations. You see, Jewish mission plays an important part in world mission. Many of the great leaders of the 19th century missionary movements were concerned for Jewish mission. Think Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor, China. Hudson Taylor gave a check at the start of the year to a Jewish mission with Romans 1.16 on it, to the Jew first. He's gone to China, but he knows Jewish mission is involved as well. And the Jewish mission actually sent the check back to him and said, Romans 1.16, and also to the Greek. And there was a lovely harmony between Jewish mission and world mission. No, I'm not just involved in Jewish mission. Because in Romans 11, let me turn over. Please turn with me over to Romans 11, if you could, just for a moment. Romans 11, verse 12, as we read earlier. Because there we read not only that Jewish mission is important, but Jewish mission has an impact on world mission. Romans 11, verse 12 says this, If their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the gentiles, well, they failed, and we've got it. Here we are. We've got riches. The, the incomparable riches of Christ are here, are ours in Fort Smith, Arkansas. Riches for the world, their failure. But how much more will their full inclusion mean? What, Lord, there's more? You have more for us? When there is a full inclusion of Israel. Or verse 15. If their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life 
from the dead. Even, even our own country, Lord? Wow. Professor John Murray commenting on these verses of Romans 11. He says, There awaits the Gentiles gospel blessing far surpassing anything experienced during the period of Israel's apostasy. This unprecedented enrichment will be occasioned by the conversion of Israel on a scale commensurate with that of their earlier disobedience. In other words, he is believing in Romans 11 that Israel's turning to Christ will be as great as their turning away from Christ. Someone once said, 12 Jewish apostles turned the world upside down. What will happen when 12 million of them turn? <laughs> no, I, I don't want to fly away. I want to see King Jesus reigning in the hearts of his blood brothers. You remember the story of Joseph? I can't remember. I've told you it before. Use it as an illustration. Please forgive me. But you remember the story of Joseph. It's, it's so, it parallels to me so much of Jesus. Again, the, the way his brothers treated him. And then Jesus is there, and he is, he, he's able to feed the world. Joseph is there, able to feed the world. And the brothers come to Joseph, and they're, they're begging simply for food, and, and, and he tests them. And then he goes out of the room. He can't control himself any longer. And then when he comes back in and he says, it's me, it's Joseph, your, your brother, and I see Jesus like that, where the Jewish people have experienced a hardening in part. There's a veil across their eyes. But one day Jesus will say, it's me, your brother, Jesus. Then we may see the fulfillment of Ezekiel 36. I'm a kingdom optimist. And I hope you are too. So that when we pray, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May we desire with hopefulness that the earth would be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the word of God which shall not return void. We know it is inerrant, infallible. We know your promises are yea and amen in Christ Jesus, and your promises are irrevocable. They are not able to be revoked or taken back. You have promised we may hold omnipotence to fulfill the promise. And so we pray these things. We pray the Lord's prayer with optimism. Even though we live in days of distraction and days of darkness, yes. But yet, O oh Lord, you're merciful. And so we pray in this congregation we may know your mercy. 
We pray that if there be any here who know not Christ, that you would work in their hearts, that you would have dealings with them, that by your Holy Spirit you would come in and live, that that revival of Romans, of Ezekiel 37, that the dry bones here may come to life. And, O oh Lord, may that be contagious. May that be contagious in Fort Smith, in all of Arkansas, in all of the U.S. Build your church, Lord. Plunder those goods, because the gates of hell shall not prevail. For Christ and His glory we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon. We hope you have grown in your knowledge of and love for God. Covenant Presbyterian is a PCA church that meets for worship on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. Our address is 120 North 9th Street in historic downtown Fort Smith, Arkansas. For more information about Covenant, visit our website at www.cpcfs.org.